Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. We're back for the first of our bi-weekly episodes of Straight Outta Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. Coming up on today's episode, Elland Highwater as Blues lose at Leeds. There's all the latest transfer news and rumours, and we round up the rest of the Chelsea news. Available for free wherever you get your podcasts and ad-free on The Athletic. This is Straight Outta Cobham. Sunday, bloody Sunday, eh, listener? Uh, let's share the pain together, shall we? It's me, Matt Davis-Adams, joined today by the Athletics Chelsea expert, Liam Toomey. Um, not good morning, Liam, but morning. Morning. You think your journey to Leeds was bad, Thomas? I had to get two trains each way. <laughs> yeah, and I had to drive my frankly unreliable car, so we all had a bit of a bad day. Um, Jesse Parker-Humphries is back with us too. How are you doing, Jesse? I've had better weekends, put it that way. <laughs> Oh, we're all feeling a bit miserable this Monday. Uh, that's only going to get worse because we're going to start today by reflecting on Sunday's match at Ellen Road. Look at Forshaw, he wants it at the back post. That's where it comes in. Just out for Rodrigo and tapped in. It's three. It's three. Rodrigo drills the ball into the cup. It was Jack Harrison with the final touch. Leeds United are absolutely hammering Chelsea inside Ellen Road. We lost it in the first 20 minutes. We gave two goals away, which is not new for us, but it's in a, if, if we give goals away like this, um, in, it's absolutely unnecessary and we're totally in charge and we cannot win, win football matches. Uh, right then, Liam and I were both on hand in Yorkshire on Sunday to see Chelsea lose 3-0. Here's a lament in the form of a voice note from Mr Toomey. Right then, let's start with the positives from a Chelsea perspective. Now that's out of the way, what an absolute horror show. And even more frustrating for Thomas Tuchel, I think. A completely foreseeable one. He spoke on Friday about the importance of Chelsea dealing with Leeds high press of being prepared to play through mistakes and not let it affect them too much and they just fell into all the all the traps they should have been prepared for uh, they, they were already worrying signs long before Edouard Mendy gave the ball away on his own goal line Conor Gallagher was had a couple of good moments but was getting on, caught on the ball far too much that seemed to spread around the team they just weren't decisive enough in possession. Leeds were running themselves into the ground to deny them space. Uh, and Chelsea also missed a couple of big chances early on to make this a very different game. Raheem Sterling curling one wide. Ruben Loftus-Cheek checking inside for no reason when he had an opportunity to shoot first time on the overlap. Chelsea did have opportunities to, to carve Leeds open, but they weren't decisive enough. And... In doing so, they allowed the game to become exactly the type of game Leeds wanted it to be. And Mendy's mistake is not the first time that he's sort of second-guessed himself and ended up making a terrible error. And it can't be overstated 
how much that led to everything that followed because I think it completely destroyed Chelsea's confidence in playing out from the back. Something they needed in order to play the way Tuchel wanted them to play here. And they never really recovered from that for the rest of the first half. Then you, then you concede another set-piece goal after Tottenham last week. That's clearly an emerging issue for Chelsea to deal with. One that Anthony Barry probably needs to get looking at. And then at half-time, Tuchel switched it around. They went more to sort of 4-2-2-2. Conor Gallagher moving closer to the front line. Ruben Loftus-Cheek pushing in field. I thought Chelsea were a little bit better. They were advancing the ball better. They were popping up in areas where Leeds weren't expecting them to. But again, not decisive enough in the final third. They didn't score and that meant Tuchel felt that he had to take a desperate gamble, bringing on Pulisic and Ziyech, basically taking off his midfield. And from that moment, Chelsea lost all structure. A Leeds third was always more likelier than a Chelsea goal back. And so it proved. And in the end, this is a, a, a huge embarrassment. Um, it's a, it's a heavy away loss, a completely deserved one. I think it changes the way you look at Chelsea's start to the season now. And it changes the, the nature of the negotiations they're going to have this week in the transfer market for, for Wesley Fofana, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, maybe even Frankie de Jong, because on this evidence, they need improvement in all areas. Oh, that was depressing, wasn't it? But on the plus side... <laughs> uh, you haven't softened presumably Liam um, in the in the few hours since the full time whistle blew it, it was a, a pretty disastrous performance from, from start to finish really wasn't it and as you say kind of the tone set by that early Sterling miss great chance and, and after that it was all leads basically well Chelsea did what they often do under Tuchel which I think is is start with the right intensity and kind of start with the right game plan and inside the first minute you had Conor Gallagher pretty much with his first touch you know slipping a ball into the left channel for Sterling Sterling as he's done a few times early in his Chelsea career doing all the difficult things well in terms of beating multiple defenders working space for a really promising shot and then just missing um it was a really really good chance and i think in these in these premier league away games in particular the first goal is really important. And I, I mean, I remember going back to the season Conte's team won the league in 2016-17. There were so many away games where they just scored with their first attack and it set the tone for everything that followed. And it, it just made, it just settled the team down into what they were doing and, and laid the foundations for a really, really good away record. And we know Chelsea were a good away team under Tuchel last year, but when they don't get that early boost of a goal, it becomes a really hard game. And you could see even before the Mendy situation happened, Chelsea were getting caught on the ball a bit more. And I mentioned in the voice note, Conor Gallagher, I felt this was a this was a tough introduction for him into what it's like in a in a top team, in a high possession team against a really intense pressing opponent. In a position that, let's be honest, is probably not his ideal one. He's more of a number eight than a number six as well. So he had more defensive responsibility than he than he's kind of used to. Next to a guy in Jorginho who probably need him needed him to do a lot of the running. I saw afterwards that Jorginho attempted twenty seven passes in sixty four minutes, which is insane, you know, by Jorginho standards. I, th I I didn't have time to check whether it was the fewest of any game he started in his Chelsea career, but it's got to be 
in the conversation and Gallagher wasn't far in front of him and he had the lowest pass completion of any Chelsea starter. So Leeds really focused on disrupting Chelsea through the middle. They began to push them back with that pressing and that's where the first goal comes from because Thiago Silva is trying to settle things down by passing the ball back to Mendy and, and giving him an opportunity to just clear the ball. And we've seen that before, haven't we? He dallies, he tries to hesitate. I think he did it once before in that game and got away with it. And he just sort of delays making a decision until he can't make a decision anymore, until there are no good decisions left. And there were immediate memories of Jared Bowen against West Ham when he gave away the penalty last season. There are immediate memories of Karim Benzema in the Champions League at Stamford Bridge. This is a really worrying pattern for Mendy. And, you know, he's had a lot of praise since he came to Chelsea. He was extremely good on that Champions League run. I think he's, in most aspects of his goalkeeping, he's been pretty solid. Um, but this issue with his feet and, and his distribution, his decision-making, I think, even more than his distribution, is something that's that's really coming to the fore now. And there have been times where he's done it and it hasn't resulted in a goal, but there are some now really high-profile really high profile mistakes and when you give away the first goal in that manner I can't remember a team coming back from a goal like that to win a game just because when you're in the stadium you were there too Matt you you know you felt the volume go up 10 times you felt you felt Leeds speed and intensity go up a few notches because it just massively validates everything that they're doing and it I think it completely shook um, Chelsea's conviction in everything they were trying to do and, and, and set the tone for everything that followed. Yeah, and you, you kind of saw that, Jesse, didn't you? In, in that Mendy didn't come out for the free kick for the second goal. He stayed rooted to his spot. I mean, if Chelsea want to play with a keeper who can play out from the back, is Kepa not better suited to that than Mendy? You've got this funny thing, I guess, at the moment where, you know, definitely Kepa with the ball at his feet is is preferable but you almost want to combine them into into one goalkeeper but I think there is an argument to say that in terms of the performances Kepa put in for you know the bits where we did see him last season his shot stopping definitely felt like it had gone you know maybe not to the level that Mendes is at but at least the level in his first season at Chelsea um it felt like it returned uh kind of to to a better set of form but also, then the the thing that becomes so hard with with goalkeepers, I think, rather than any other position on the pitch, is you can take a player out from everywhere else on the pitch for a couple of games, and I think you know, like reassess and, and look to for them to kind of get their head in the right place. But goalkeeping is such a confidence position. The idea of just dropping a a player who who came in and basically bailed the club out, right? from from the Kepa situation massively and and then then where do you stand because you're now back with with this keeper who everyone knows is is very good at, at the things that he can do in terms of you know the shot stopping and you've got another goalkeeper who who people also know what his faults are so you just end up in this this position where you know I don't think that works out for for anyone and I think the weird thing about Mendy is I felt like when he first arrived at the club his stuff with his feet was was the quite obvious red flag, but it felt like he improved a lot as he kind of grew into the team and, and got more confident. But again, we've now kind of seen this 
decline over the past maybe half season or so, where he feels like it is just taking the, that that extra bit too long. And I think here especially, it was like, it wasn't one of the case where the pass was like a little bit short or the player was immediately following in. He had so much time, like almost too much time, I guess, in, in that he had time to to weigh up the different options and and that's where it that's where it all went wrong. But yeah, you're just watching that and thinking like it's not that deep. Just stick your boot through it. <laughs> and he's 30 years old. What struck me here, Liam? You mentioned Conor Gallagher there. Obviously, it's his his first Premier League start for Chelsea. I thought he was let down by some of the other senior players in the team. I think he'd let Thiago Silva off that. I think he did the, all that he could. But Koulibaly obviously sent off and kind of run ragged a bit. Jorginho, as you say, swamped in midfield and Sterling missing those chances. That's a concern, isn't it? When when those guys who, who are bringing the experience and the know-how to deal with a hostile crowd and a team that are pressing you just don't turn up. It is, yeah. And I think, um, you know, when you're looking at Koulibaly, I remember asking him, in his unveiling press conference, what he thought the biggest challenge would be for him adapting to English football. And he gave a really good answer, which was essentially, I need to learn how to think quicker, which I think is pretty common for for players coming, not just from Italy, but from other European leagues into the Premier League, getting used to having that split second less time, um, taking one touch fewer or just making a decision faster. And Koulibaly looked like he did that really well against Tottenham. And, he, you know, he, he was very rarely caught on the ball, very rarely made a mistake. It looked different from pretty early on against Leeds. And not only was he getting caught on the ball, but he was also over committing and getting caught the wrong side. At the moment he got that early yellow card, I got a bad feeling because he's the kind of defender who's very aggressive in those 1v1 situations. And he's he's liable to put the referee in a position where he has to make a decision. And I mean, the you know, the, the context of him getting the second yellow was completely stupid. You know, he shouldn't be making any sort of tackle at that stage. The game's gone. Just keep yourself available. Jorginho, yeah, he, he would normally be the one you'd look to, wouldn't you? especially given the type of player he is, to get his foot on the ball, to set, settle things down, to get Chelsea playing the right way. But we've seen in the past that when he doesn't have necessarily the right personnel around him he can get swarmed by really athletic really hard-working opponents and that's exactly what happened Leeds made Chelsea play around him rather than through him and I think the massive miss here was Kante just a massive massive miss when you look at the way he played against Tottenham the way he can just recover the ball and, and turn a bad situation within a few seconds into a good one by winning it back just through his positioning, his understanding with Jorginho positionally. Um, he plays a vital role when he's there in settling Chelsea down. And I think the fact that he wasn't there, the fact that Gallagher's still kind of learning and that position and and sort of what it means to play for a really high possession team like Chelsea, all of those things came together along with the traditional lack of ruthlessness in the final third um, for what we saw at Ellen Road. Jesse, I thought it was really prescient of Thomas Tuchel when he was asked about Ruben Loftus-Cheek before the match saying, I'm, I'm reluctant, words along the lines of, I'm reluctant to praise Ruben because every time I do, I feel like he drops at least 1% in terms of his performance in the next game. We thought he was the answer to, to the reserve right wing back issue uh, last week because the way he played against Spurs, I've kind of changed my mind about 
that now. You, you just want him to to be a bit more intelligent sometimes, if that's not too harsh a thing to say. You know, he's 26 years old now. He does that trick where he kind of checks back inside all the time and, and it kills the momentum of a move. I'm just, I'm not convinced, basically. How did you feel he did? Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to focus on that kind of opportunity where he should just shoot and I don't know what's going what's going on there. Um, and I think you saw when Tuchel switched it around at half time and he went more central and Reese was was playing basically right back. You saw the difference, I think, between, you know, what those two players offer. And I think that's something that feels quite frustrating. But I also thought it was maybe harder for Ruben in this game because of the nature of Gallagher's positioning where it felt like he was coming out a lot more to the left. So a lot more stuff was going down that side for Chelsea. Um, and it felt quite hard, I think, for the for the right side of our attack to get into the game at all, because I think that's quite jarring as well, because you often see Kante obviously coming out more to the right. So I felt like that, that was like that positioning made things feel a bit more lopsided. And I think also then was something that made it easier for Leeds to to focus their press, right? Because it didn't feel like we were able to kind of switch our attack and, and rotate rotate it round. And I thought, you know, even it was strange with Mount, it felt like he was coming in very central. So when you were kind of looking across the pitch, it was like it really was just kind of Ruben out there. But there was no obvious opportunity to kind of make the quick switch that that we normally see when when we kind of try and overload one side. So I think I think for Ruben, it's, it's hard, right? Because he's not a wing back. And I get what you're saying, Matt, in terms of, you know, wanting to make smarter decisions and that, that opportunity in the box is, is a great one. But for me, I couldn't help but watch this game and think, Tino Livramento, Tarek Lanty, we are a club that seems to solely develop right backs, right wing backs. And we don't even play the one we have in that position anymore. So then you just have to, I think, question what has the long-term planning been at all? I completely understand Tuchel's desire to to give Loftus-Cheek the chance to build on that Tottenham performance and, and why he picked him again. But Leeds are known to be weak in wide areas and the success Chelsea had came from building down wide areas, overloading the flanks, or from quick switches of play from left to right. And and those were the moments when they looked like they might carve leads open in the first half. Loftus-Sheik's natural tendency is not going to be to hug the touchline. He's a central midfielder. His, his instincts are going to be to come in a little bit, to tuck in a little bit. I really can no longer see the, the benefit or at least how the benefits outweigh the costs of playing James in the back three. I think that game would have been absolutely perfect for him to be found by you know quick diagonals from Koulibaly or, or Kukurea and just really going at Leeds on that side when they weren't quite set and getting them scrambling. Chelsea just lose so much when he's not able to get into the final third with regularity. And... I understand from a defensive perspective, you know, you, you might want to play him there to provide some covering speed, but who in Leeds attack were Chelsea really worried about? Leeds didn't actually look like scoring until Chelsea literally gave them the ball on the goal line and said, take the lead. So I, I, 
I could see it against Tottenham when you're thinking about Son. I could see it against Real Madrid when you're thinking about Vinicius, especially given what he did in that first leg. But unless you've got a really standout, super fast, skillful left-sided forward, I, I don't see the need to put James there. And maybe actually the biggest benefit of signing Fafana would be that it would finally persuade Tuchel never to do that again and to play James as a wing-back where, where Chelsea really need him to be for their attack. All right, so problems in defence. Uh, here's a tweet from Luca focusing on attack. Jesse, I'll put this to you. Next pod, can we chat about Tuchel's inability to get any attacker firing his entire time here? Refuse to believe Lukaku, Timo, Callum, Ziyech, Kai, Pulisic are flop slash need replacing. No evidence new attacker would do better in this system. Um, I asked... Tuchel about the, the mischances yesterday and kind of said, you know, there's not much you can you can do about that in terms of coaching players to finish chances. But th- there's got to be some way that Chelsea can get more out of the attacking options they've got, hasn't there? Because, you know, Havertz in particular, Liam, put your fingers over your ears for a minute, but he was totally anonymous on Sunday, wasn't he? He barely featured in the game at all. So, so how are Chelsea going to get the players that they've got scoring goals? Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that We've played the same front three for our first three games and none of them have scored. Is just like I don't know how you can expect to to feel like your team's doing well in an attacking sense if that's if that's the way it's gonna play out. And I think something that I guess is maybe the biggest question mark to me around whether it's just like a finishing thing in inverted commas or an attacking thing is when you look at the chances that were created and, and the good opportunities and the shots there they're all from the edge or just outside the area. There's the, the Reese James opportunity, the Mason Mount one and Sterling's one where he he cuts inside. And and obviously the offside one he scored was it was in a very similar position. And it doesn't feel like between the three of Sterling Havertz and Mount right now, there's much sense of how they combine to get themselves into better areas from which to take chances. And, you know, all of them are players who we know can finish from those kind of areas. But it's natural that, obviously you know you're going to find it hard to score if that's where you're always taking the the chance from and I don't know whether it's feeling like all of them feel maybe the burden on themselves to to score so they they want to take it when it's the opportunity in front of them rather than for looking for the run to the pass but that's what feels like to me there's not a sense in terms of the attacking build-up there's no connection I don't think between the three of them around who's moving where when the ball gets into dangerous bits on the you know top of the penalty area or, or the edge of the penalty area. And I think that's just something that does obviously come down to tactics and, and attacking ultimately. One of the first things Timo Werner said after going back to RB Leipzig was, I didn't feel like the system at Chelsea made the most of my qualities. And you know, Werner was disappointing under Lampard as well in a different tactical system. So you can maybe not lay that one at Tuchel's door. But the, the thing is, individually with all these forwards, there are ways to explain it that don't lead you to Tuchel and Tuchel's system. But collectively, the fact that none of them appear to be maximised ever, um, I think indicates a broader systemic issue. And you have to wonder whether signing... A 33-year-old Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang would be the the solution to that. Tuchel said after Leeds that he, you know, the, the message was that Chelsea had created enough chances to be on top in the game. 
Well, actually, their XG was 0.77, which is the lowest they'd produced in any Premier League game since they were completely smothered by Manchester City in January at the Etihad. And they, you know, they they just don't create as many chances as as City or or Liverpool, who are genuinely elite attacking teams. And you have to look partly at the system for that. I think, yeah, individuals have to hold themselves accountable for their performances and they're missing good chances. And certainly all of Chelsea's starting attackers have been guilty of that, of that at different points. But I'm not sure it's as credible anymore for Tuchel to say, look, I'm doing everything I possibly can to put all of these forwards in, in the best positions to succeed. Uh, producer Lucy saying, only positive, it could be worse. We could be Man United. Um, I'll chuck in another positive. Chelsea playing Leicester next week. And I think if you're going to pick a team in the Premier League at the moment, other than Man United to play, it would be Leicester. Also, Thomas Tuchel's got a full week on the training ground to try and get a tune out of his attackers and sort his defence out. So let's hope that that will happen. We'll look ahead to that Leicester game in our Thursday show. Next today, we're going to discuss all the potential incomings and outgoings as we head towards the closure of the transfer window. Hello, I'm James Richardson. If, like me, you've ever felt like one of Cantona's cows watching gamely as football steams past like an express train, then why not join me three times a week over on the Totally Football Show? This Monday, for example, I'll be joined by Daniel Storey, Tom Williams and Benjamin Yardo to explain what actually happened this Premier League weekend. Huh. Tuesday, it's the turn of the Euro crew, Horncastle, Honigstein, Alvaro Romeo and Julian Laurence to drop knowledge on all the continent's big stories, including this week the biggest last-minute comeback in Bundesliga history. Woof. Thursday then, it's back to our septic aisle to preview the weekend's Premier League games again with data beta Duncan Alexander and this week, analysis from Karl Anker and Adrian Clark. Join us then for cogent insight, fun and a few feeble puns plus the odd move from me. Just search for The Totally Football Show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. Right, Liam's latest piece for The Athletic is titled Bringing in Aubameyang de Jong and Fofana won't solve all of Chelsea's problems. Uh, he's right, of course, but it's not going to stop us talking about those players and more. Uh, let's start with Fofana. Not in the right frame of mind to play for Leicester on Saturday. Uh, Brendan Rodgers, this is what he's had to say to Leicestershire Live about Wesley Fofana. The reality is for a club like ours, you can't be afraid to do that, Sell. As long as it's a good business for the club and if it's good for the player, it's normally a win-win situation. So basically, Liam, what he's saying is... that is, Sam Neill in the first season of Peaky Blinders? <laughs> nah, his Northern Irish accent. Uh, my Brendan's normally quite good, but he's reading quotes that are not very good at you. Know, I, I thought we're outstanding. Great mentality from the player. Anyway, 
basically what he's saying, Liam, is we're going to sell Wesley Fofana to Chelsea at some point. And presumably it's got to be quite soon, hasn't it? Because Leicester have got to get somebody in to replace him. And it doesn't look like Daniel Amati's the man to do that. So are you expecting this one to kind of heat up a little bit this week as, as Chelsea's need for a defender becomes greater and, and Leicester need to get somebody in? I'd expect the new Chelsea offer for Fofana sooner rather than later. But equally, I'd be stunned if Leicester sold him in time to be registered to play against them. <laughs> Especially now Koulibaly's suspended. You know, that situation becomes all the more likely. I would just be really, really surprised if Leicester did that. Could they like say, right, we want to get the transfer done quickly, so let's do it. But let's say as part of it, you don't play him on Sunday. No, they can't do that. It's, it's against Premier League rules. You, you, can, you can do it with a loan. But not selling a player, he's they wouldn't have any control over Fafana from that point. But they can control when they sell him. Um, so, yeah, it, it's an interesting equation for Leicester because they do clearly need to do business themselves. Um, so I, it'll be it'll be interesting to see where they land on those conversations this week. I think Chelsea will put more pressure on them with a higher bid. Fafana's already shown a willingness to put pressure on them with the way he's conducting himself. Uh, making life uncomfortable. So I do think that deal will get done. It's just a question of when and and whether it's uh, early enough to, to really help Chelsea in this in this starting portion of the season. From a supporter's perspective, Jesse, how do you look at Fofana not making himself available for selection on, on Saturday? Are you kind of, oh, please, do you desperately want to come to Chelsea or mm, this is a, a slight red flag as to his character? Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't always feel like a great vibe and I think generally you look at he obviously signed this long-term contract what half a year ago or so whilst injured, yeah. Right. And then you're like, oh, this now he's like really agitating for this amazing move, but you think everyone knew that Wesley Fofana was very talented and wasn't going to spend the rest of his life at Leicester. So I think the whole thing around taking that decision then as a result, the buying club has to spend a fortune because they've got absolutely zero leverage in terms of the contract. And then when you're then looking to force the move, I get it. Like, I think it's very hard to imagine footballers' contracts as normal humans because it's so different to, to any other job reality that you have if you're not a footballer. And in any other world, right, we would just hand in our notice and go and take that new shiny job offer that that we want elsewhere. But And I can get that's really frustrating, especially if you're very, very young. But I just, I think the thing that makes me worried, and, and maybe it doesn't add up to anything, but I feel like the whole situation just doesn't sound like a load of great people around the player in terms of decision making. Hmm. Uh, what about Bizarcelona? Liam, they need to sell some players so they can register some others. Aubameyang and De Jong, what are the what are the odds as we speak on Monday of one or both of those coming to Chelsea? Um, I'm taking my lead from our colleague David Ornstein on this. Uh, I, I think Aubameyang is is significantly more likely. The indications are that he would be very open to the move, uh, which was as we discussed in previous weeks, the sort of main question mark, really, how willing he would be to leave Barcelona, but it appears that he is. And then it comes down to a fee. And I, I'm more com- even more confident than with Fafana, I think, that these these Barcelona situations will go down to the wire because there is, there's brinkmanship on both sides. You know, Barcelona want to 
maximise any money that they get from Aubameyang and De Jong. And of course, De Jong is still insistent that he doesn't want to leave. But at the same time, Chelsea know that Barcelona are under extreme pressure to sell. They still haven't registered Jules Koundé. <laughs> and you know that that is now being cited as a a factor in Marcus Alonso's potential future and whether he ends up at Barcelona. The, the fact that Barcelona have these registration issues that aren't going away. So I think the conversations about price are very very difficult because there's going to there's there's brinkmanship on both sides and both sides have a credible reason to believe they have the upper hand right now. But that will shift significantly, I think, one way or the other as we get closer to the to the transfer deadline. I'm sure Todd Bowley will be hoping for an improved performance against Leicester because what we saw at Ellen Road did not do wonders for his negotiating position. Let's put it that way. What an atrocious way to treat people at Barcelona doing this summer. It's just really, really awful, I think. Um, hey, Jesse, here's something that I wrote at Ellen Road about an hour before the game kicked off says, reserve RWB, gone quiet on Dumfries and Walker-Peters. Is that because Ruben has proved a viable alternative? Um, yeah, how'd that go? Uh, do you think we need to get somebody else in or, or would you just be looking at the under-21s, under-18s and saying, where's the next Tarek Lamptey? Where's the next Tino Livramento? I mean, I always felt like the right wing-back position was almost more needed than the left wing back one just in terms of players it felt like we had had available but I can't say any of the names we've been linked with inspire great excitement within me and I guess maybe you know as as we kind of said if the Fafana deal gets done you're happy with with Reese James being there but then we've also seen that Reese James isn't necessarily a player who you can rely on to be totally fit throughout the season it's also an incredibly physically demanding position so I don't think it's worth writing off Ruben off the back of one poor game when as we've said I think pretty much everyone on the pitch you could maybe with the exception of Diago Silva you could say had a pretty dire game and as we said we've seen Ruben have good performances there as well so I think if you get the right-sided centre-back thing done maybe it makes more sense but then equally I would say there's already a right-sided centre-back in Trevor Chalaber, who I'd be perfectly happy to see play more often. So I don't think really any of that feels like it makes a whole host of sense. Not that I don't think Fofana would be a great signing, but I think it just comes back down to this, the whole narrative over a number of years, really, of constantly having to find this one. It's always one last piece, one last piece, when maybe some of the pieces were there before. And yeah, I'm, I'm not sure like running out into the right wing back market feels like the most sensible idea because it, it it's not obvious it's there. But then at the same time, you can see the benefit of having having that backup. We look at outgoings then. Jesse mentions Trevor Chalabert, Liam. I'm forever doing this in this window and I'm forever being told that it's not how transfers work anymore. But if Fafana's coming in and Chalabert's being linked with a loan out, does it not make sense? For, to kind of grease the wheels of that deal by saying, well, you take Chalabert for a season, we'll take Fafana and give you a boatload of money and everybody's happy. Well, Leicester apparently looking for a winger as well. So Hudson-Odoi, maybe. I mean, we saw that with with Colwell and Kukurea, although they were eventually structured as separate deals. And I think if that was going to happen, 
that is what we would see this time as well. I, I do find the, the, the Chalaba situation in general strange because he was someone who won Tuchel's trust at the start of last season and you know, was a really good story, but more importantly, was performing at a very high level on the right of that back three. Had a lot of the things Tuchel looks for. Earned himself a good long-term contract extension and then seemingly lost um, Tuchel's trust you know, in the second half of the season. And from conversations I've had, I don't think even Chalaba knows why. I, I don't think it's ever been explained. I don't think he can put his finger on why he's he's suddenly fallen so far down the pecking order. And it's just carried into this season to the point where, you know, you would think, why, if, why wouldn't you just play him there against Leeds and play James at right wing back? He's fast enough. You know, he's he's mobile enough. He's good on the ball. You wouldn't really. I don't think you'd lose that much. He's made mistakes and had lapses in concentration, but so have Chelsea's other defenders who are much more experienced than him. But it does seem like at this point, there's a very real chance that he'll be leaving on loan this summer, particularly if Fafana comes in, because that will only make the situation worse with Azpilicueta still there. The logjam is even greater. So. Yeah, Leicester could be a, a decent landing spot for, for Chalabert, could be a good landing spot for Hudson-Odoi. I would expect movement on these situations in, in the next week or so because all of these guys are not playing. They're not, well, I know Chalabert played for the development squad last week. Hudson-Odoi isn't playing any football at the moment. Billy Gilmore isn't playing any football at the moment. They're all just assessing their options and, and trying to make the best decision for their futures. Jesse, the, the two... Academy products, uh, Chalaber and, and Hudson Adoy, but do you view them a little bit separately in terms of potential loan exits? Like we'll lament the Chalaber one, I think maybe a bit more than Hudson Adoy because there's an understanding that Hudson Adoy kind of needs to get his career back on track after injury problems and, and a loss of form, whereas Chalaber hasn't really done anything wrong, it seems. Yeah, the Chalaber thing grinds my gears, to be honest, because it just doesn't make any sense to me. And it's exactly like Liam said. If you're worried about that pace piece, fine, just put Chalabar in. Like, and then when you look at Koulibaly's decision making, right, with the red card in that game, you're like, well, come on, like, is this guy really going to be like acting as stupid as as the person who supposedly come in, you know, one of the original people to come in and save your defense this season? I think with Callum, yeah, it's fairly clear that he he needs the the minutes to get up to to full fitness. I think both in terms of the injury and then obviously the experiences he had with COVID, that's something that isn't necessarily going to change overnight. And I feel like the thing with Callum, though, which maybe makes it feel harder slash sadder, is there aren't many players I can think of who've come through the Chelsea Academy system who have felt more hyped than Callum Hudson-Odoi did in terms of excitement. And there have obviously been a number of opportunities where he could have left and he didn't and he stayed and it, it felt like, you know, it was always on the cusp of going to happen, cusp of going to happen. And obviously, if he's going to go on loan, it's not saying that it's it's never going to happen, but it does feel like a kind of acceptance that it's not happening anytime soon. And it feels hard to imagine him really coming good at Chelsea, I think, now. And I think there's, with Trevor Chalabur, maybe there's a different sense of whilst it's frustrating to not see him in the first 11 now, you can imagine him going out on loan and, and still being able to make that step up with, with the extra game time, especially because, 
you know, the expectation last season was that he would go on loan. So that whole kind of adventure in the first half of the season was a bit of a surprise. Whereas I wonder with Callum whether it feels like that ship has has sort of sailed now. Yeah, you'd hope, I guess, with Chalaber and Levi Colwell that there's a, there's a route there for them next season with Aspilicueta and, and Thiago Silva not getting any younger. Uh, Liam, I was surprised to see Ethan Ampadu on the bench against Leeds, given that he hadn't been given a squad number. Uh, if Chelsea want to get Anthony Gordon from Everton, are they going to have to, to offer a, a Gilmore and Ampadu or somebody else in, in with that deal, do you think? Because Ampadu and Gilmore have got to go somewhere, right? Well, certainly Gilmore, who hasn't been given a squad number... Um, and Everton has always seemed like the most likely spot for him, given how much Lampard likes him. But they've just gone out and signed Amadou Anana, um, and their greatest need is for attacking players, not midfielders right now. Ampadu, I'm not sure. I think at, at the moment we're not hearing much in terms of an, an exit for him. He, I think he is liked in Italy based on his loan performances there. But at the moment... You know, Tuchel mentioned last week, I've got 18 players in first team training for two straight days. That suggests a lot of these other guys that are in limbo are are not with the group. But Ampadu is one of the ones that, that is. And I think his versatility gives some options, at least some measure of insurance for Tuchel in the short term. I haven't got a great impression that he's particularly important to Tuchel's plans beyond that. So if you're just thinking purely in terms of his development, yeah, it would be best for him to go out. I'm not sure where where he best fits. I'm still not sure where Ampadu best fits on the pitch. Uh, he, he's a very intriguing player in that sense. Jesse, who's going to play first team football first this season? Ross Barkley or Marcos Alonso? I've got a horrible feeling it'll be Alonso. <laughs> I feel like, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. Between either of them, it just feels like they're just really like the forgot. They they go off the bench and you just kind of forget they're there. If Marcus Alonso doesn't leave, it's going to be very frustrating. I think Ross Barkley. I'm like Marcus Alonso will be frustrating because it felt like it was done and we could write it off. And can you imagine? I feel like I could just see us. We'll end up with four left wing backs. Emerson won't go. Marcus Alonso will stay. We'll have Cucurella, Chilwell, and we'll play a back four of, of left wing backs. Uh, that Emerson to West Ham deal, Liam, that looked as though it had fallen through last week, but it seems it's been resurrected now. 13 million, maybe two more to follow if they can agree personal terms. Is that right? That, that certainly seems to be the case. I think it would be a good deal for Chelsea. I know it's less than they paid for him, but you're not going to get what you paid for him um, after all this time. I think he's a decent Premier League standard left back, but he, he's clearly not good enough to play in this Tuchel team and, and he's been rendered completely obsolete by Mark Kukurea. He's absolutely in the bracket of Chelsea, of, of players that Chelsea need to sell rather than loan. And so we haven't heard anything about serious suitors beyond West Ham. It feels like only Premier League clubs can spend significant transfer fees on players this summer. Uh, I'm sure Chelsea have called Nottingham Forest a few times, given how many other players they're signing. But um, yeah, I think it would be a good deal for all involved. Emerson would play at West Ham, you would think, and, and play pretty regularly and, and be an upgrade for them. And Chelsea just need to trim things down and, and, and cut a few costs. 
uh, loads more transfer activity to happen between now and when we next speak on Thursday. I'm sure The Athletic is the best place to keep up to date with it as it happens. Athletic.com slash Chelsea pod, the place to go to sign up for just a pound a month for your first six months. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Elsewhere in Chelsea news, the women's team have been in action on their US tour since last we spoke. After drawing 2-2 with Leon and losing the subsequent shootout, Emma Hayes' side took on the Portland Thorns on Saturday and registered a 1-0 win. Guro Wrighton got the goal. Jesse, I note that the uh, the three new signings, Buchanan, Perisette and Canarid, uh, all started here. Do you think that they'll be straight into the first team come the WSL kickoff or will it be like a slower integration period for, for one, two or three of them? I think one player will be in straight away, and that's Kadisha Buchanan. Her performances over both those games were just another level. She's a very, very talented centre-back, and I think is going to offer our defence a lot. I think there's still a bit of a question mark of how exactly she fits in with Millie Bright and Magda Eriksson. Hayes played a, a back four with Eriksson at left-back against, against the Portland Thorns to play all three of them, and, and I do think that's probably where she will end up in in terms of in terms of seeing that but there's no doubt in my mind that Buchanan is going to basically play as many minutes as it is possible for her to play. Perisset and Canarid are I guess a bit more question marks. I do think Perisset will become the first choice right back but it will be interesting to see how that plays out with Jess Carter. Only Millie Bright played more WSL minutes than, than Jess Carter last season so it'd be a big shift for, for Hayes kind of to drop her out of the team but I think that's probably the way it will go. The one question mark I have over that is that Perisset is a, is a great right back, but part of the reason Chelsea was so interested in her is, is her versatility. She can play left back as well. She's also played defensive midfield, and that is a bit of a problem position for Chelsea still. Sophie Ingalls kind of the first choice there by virtue of being the only choice there. Uh, Hayes tried Aaron Cuthbert there against Lyon, which is an option, but feels like a waste of what Cuthbert's abilities are um so I don't know if that's that's a long-term thing Chelsea are still linked to to two midfielders but neither of whom quite fill the the defensive midfield role Yelena Kankovic and Graske Oro I think Kankovic is is much more likely to happen than than Graske Oro is but both of them would would probably be players you'd see more as eights or, or tens rather than sixes so Perisette, I think it'll be interesting to see where exactly she does end up and it might take longer to figure that out just because of her versatility. Canarid, I think, I mean, I don't think against the Thorns she made a case to immediately go into the team. She's going to be there as right wing and it will be interesting to see what Hayes' assessment of Frank Kirby's fitness is because Frank Kirby was left out of the squad for both these games, although she did travel to America 
with the team. So I feel like there's a sense of it was important to rest her after she played, you know, started every game at the Euros, obviously. But that will be Canarid's big competition. And I think that will be a much more kind of rotational basis, depending on how fit Kirby is, how many minutes she can she can take on with the fatigue. I think obviously it was hard for Canarid in this game because, you know, she had Perisset making her debut behind her at right back as well, plus trying to find those relationships with with Sam Kerr and Peniel Harder. But she's a very traditional winger. And I think you kind of saw that it's going to take her some time to adjust to the way Emma Hayes wants to play in terms of the rotational versatility that Penela Harder, Frank Kirby and Sam Kerr normally have as kind of a, a front three. Although again, with Hayes playing a back four in this game, Harder was then then at the 10 and Gura right and was on was on the left wing. So I think Hannerid's the one of the three we're we're least likely to see the most of. But I think all three of them showed that they're they're big upgrades on not upgrades, maybe that's unfair, but they're, they're all going to strengthen the squad quite significantly. Um, Lauren James isn't a new signing, but she didn't play much in her first season for, for one reason or another. I know she only got a, a sort of 10-minute cameo in, in the game against the Thorns. Are you expecting her to get more game time next season? And what, what does she need to do to get that? Because she looked so good in her last season at Man United. It was it was really disappointing how she how she didn't really make an impact last season for Chelsea. Yeah, she only played 10 minutes against the Thorns, but she started against Lyon and she scored a very, very good goal. Uh, so if you if you haven't seen it and you want to know what Lauren James is about, I recommend going to find her goal against Lyon. She basically chops inside and, and smashes it beyond Tiana Endler, who's definitely not a bad keeper. Um, so I think she can come away from this tour feeling really confident. She... She obviously had a lot of injury issues coming into the club and kind of the party line is that the reason she barely played was because they wanted to make sure that they got her up to the right level of fitness. You know, she's obviously a very young player still. They were concerned about how frequently she'd been injured and there was this kind of implication that at Manchester United they'd rushed her back because she was so kind of important to the team and and that had led to these kind of ongoing problems and that Chelsea didn't really need to rush her back. So they wanted to wait. But I think definitely if you were looking between Canarid and James, who impressed most and could play on that that right hand side, I, I would say James. The way the way the ball sticks to her feet is very, very impressive. And I think something Chelsea have struggled with in the games against the big teams. And, you know, for context, Chelsea were were 2-0 up against Lyon and in total cruise control against basically the European champions, although they weren't playing their full strength side. Obviously it's preseason, et cetera, et cetera. Ended up drawing 2-2 after we made a million substitutions. So, but I think what James offered was that ability to hold on to possession. Emma Hayes' sides have always kind of excelled in the sort of transitional counter-attacking style of play. And I think in the WSL, you can get away with that. But in women's European football at the moment, possession is really king. And it's not always something that Chelsea have felt very good at, at being able to hold on to the ball in, in moments where they needed to to keep the game under control. And I think that's something that Lauren James is very, very good at. And you, you even saw it in the 10 minutes she came on against Portland Thorns. The Thorns had basically brought on all of their proper starting 11 for the, for the last kind of 30 minutes of the game. And, and Chelsea started to lose control again. But as soon as James came on, it was a total pace change because she was just able to get the ball and go. And and then for the kind of last five minutes, Chelsea were back on top and looked more like scoring again. So I think she can go away from this tour feeling really pleased. And it's obviously helped her to have to have had this whole summer and this whole preseason 
with the players there. And I think you saw that again in her relationship with, with Sam Kerr. That felt like it was a lot further along than, than maybe when we saw her in her brief cameos last season. Uh, remember, the WSL campaign gets underway on the 11th of September. Chelsea hosting West Ham. Before that, they've got a friendly against Spurs this coming Sunday. Uh, in terms of the men's development and under-18 sides this weekend, mixed bag for them. The under-18s made it two wins from two at the start of their league season after breezing past Leicester 4-0 at Cobham on Saturday. Leo Castledine celebrated his 17th birthday by scoring twice. Michael Golding and Brody Hughes also notched for Ed Brand's side who had Harrison McMahon sent off 15 minutes from time and uh, not such good news for the under 21s though they were well up 4-1 at Arsenal Charlie Webster with the Blues consolation goal in that one and uh, that'll just about do it for us today Liam we've mentioned uh, your piece on signings not being the solution necessarily for Chelsea what else are you going to be working on this week is Mendy any good with his feet <laughs> uh, I'm going to be doing a big piece. one of your shorter I- articles this week <laughs> Yeah, just a rhetorical question and then scroll to the comments. Um, and I'm going to hopefully be working with our excellent data guys um, to, to dig into Mendy's distribution, his decision-making, and maybe get a little bit of insight into Kepa, that aspect of his game as well, and and just see what is becoming a an issue that Chelsea fans are talking about more and more. Um, and beyond that, I think we're, again, just looking at transfers ins and outs it's only going to intensify over this week and as we get closer and closer to the deadline uh, elsewhere the sadists among you might enjoy the excellent tifo football video up on the athletic explaining how leeds beat chelsea athletic.com slash chelsea pod the place to go to sign up if you aren't currently a subscriber uh, we'll be back to our regular thursday slot for the second show of the week join us for that as we preview the weekend's game against leicester and more for now though many thanks to jesse to liam to producer lucy and to you for joining us we'll catch up with you later in the week bye for now the athletic As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.